we have been journeying for the last year through the Minor Prophets. It doesn't seem like a year, though. It doesn't to me anyway. Maybe just to you. Um, you've had to sit and listen to it. But for me, it hasn't felt like a year we've been going through this. Um, and I've really, really enjoyed this study. It's something that's been so fresh. Um, and, you know, the Minor Prophets sit there at the end of the Old Testament. And much of the content, if you read it, it can seem a little obscure. But when you study it, it comes alive. And that's what we've seen as we've been going through. And, you know, this whole journey has been one of, of just growing, learning, seeing God's incredible plan and purpose. Uh, of course, we know the first five books of the Bible, the, Tor, the Torah, uh, that Moses recorded for us, the things that he had passed down to him. Uh, seemingly Adam and others had written accounts and they all got collated. Moses brings it all together. Um, and then, of course, in Genesis and then Exodus onwards, uh, we have the account of the nation going to Egypt, leaving Egypt, becoming a nation, moving into the land, the law that God gives them and the rules and their journey in the wilderness for those 38 years. It's an incredible parallel, you know, we've looked at this before, but the, the nation of Israel started with a period of 38 years. The church also started with a period of 38 years. The church started with a, a period where God was king. Israel started with a period where God was king. We then move into that time, the, the history books of the Old Testament, starting with Joshua, and it was a time of conquest and so on, and victory in the midst of adversity, and the church started in exactly the same way. And then you get to the time of Judges, where complacency stepped in, or crept in. And we see the same with the church, around right about the time of Constantine. No longer were Christians being persecuted for what they believed. And then it gets to the time with Israel that they don't want God to rule over them, they want a man to rule over them. The same thing happened with the church. And we ended up with the papacy, with a man heading up the church. And we go through the Old Testament, we look at the history of Israel, and we see how all of these things mirror the growth of the church. And you see God's plan and purpose in all of these things. From the history books, we move, of course, into the, the books of poetry, uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Son of Solomon. Incredible books. So much wisdom, so much uh, instruction. They're called often wisdom literature. The major prophets we've obviously looked at. We've studied through some of these things uh, in detail. Uh, in fact, we started our journey into the minor prophets in the book of Daniel. We went through Daniel first, and then we got into these minor prophets. And once again, not minor because of uh, lack of uh, quality or content, just simply that the, the books themselves typically are shorter. Just to give you a very brief overview as we kind of draw to a close in this study through the Minor Prophets. Hosea again, what an incredible book, that God loves Israel despite her sin. And we see through the children that Hosea has, the, the Lord prophetically details the future of the nation. Um, those that were called a people are no longer a people. And then God brings them back home. And that lovely account of the way that uh, Hosea goes and purchases his wife. Uh, and we see the compassion of the Lord in what Christ did for us in that as well. The book of Joel, this incredible prophetic book, seemingly the first of all of the, the, the books of prophecy uh, that were recorded, lays out the whole of this panorama of the future of Israel and what's going to happen. Um, speaking very much of the day of the Lord, uh, that idea that Peter picks up and speaks about on the day of Pentecost and so on. Uh, just a wonderful book, just a few chapters, three chapter book, um, but so much depth in that book. Again, really worth going over that and studying again, just to see God's plan unveiled. The book of Amos, this incredible shepherd, 
and, and keeper of, of, of fig um, uh, person, man, whatever you call people that looked after figs. I'm not sure you have a title for that, but you know, just the way that God just calls this man to speak to the nation, and that God is just and must judge sin, and that's the message that He brings. Of course, the book of Obadiah, Obadiah. This speaks of the retribution that God is going to bring on Israel's enemies because of their iniquity, um, particularly Edom. Jonah, well, we know the account, the way that God's grace goes to the Gentiles. And then, of course, we have Micah, a book that we're familiar with because of the verse about Bethlehem, but it speaks so much about the coming Messiah and the promises that God has for Israel. The book of Nahum Again, another book that deals with Gentiles, specifically with the destruction that was to come upon Nineveh. Yes, Jonah had preached, they'd repented, but a hundred or so years later, they'd gone back to their old ways, and God brings judgment upon them. Um, we're told in the New Testament that God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. And we get to the book of Habakkuk, another wonderful short book, but so much in there. Uh, and we just have that great line there, that the just shall live by faith. And we see uh, so much that came out of that. Zephaniah, just another short little book focusing once again on the day of the Lord that is going to precede this coming kingdom that will be established. Haggai, love the book of Haggai. Two chapters that really challenge. It's just that whole consider your ways. You know, are you sowing to yourself or are you giving your heart and your life to the things of God? In, funny, in a funny way, Malachi is going to give us that same kind of challenge. Then we have the book of Zechariah. This uh, one of the longer of the, the minor prophets, these 14 chapters we've just been going through. Uh, really the thing, again, repentant Israel will see their Messiah. The question's asked, well, why aren't we seeing the blessings that God said we'd see now that we're back in the land? And ultimately they're told, Zechariah tells them, well, because you haven't sought me with your whole heart. And there is still judgment yet to come. But after that judgment, after that chastisement to the nation of Israel, the Messiah will come. You will be established. God will choose Jerusalem. It will become the center of the earth. People will long to go up to Jerusalem. It's an incredible book of prophecy. And then, of course, Malachi that we're going to move into this morning speaks that judgment is certain for the wicked. And yet in amongst that, there are so many of the themes, as we'll see, that will come out. Just looking at all these books uh, together, Malachi, of course, towards the end, uh, not strictly speaking the last book written. Uh, Nehemiah seems to be the last one written. We know that Nehemiah was serving uh, King Artaxerxes in about 445 BC. That's when he goes to the king and the king gives his decree for Jerusalem to rebuild, actually triggering the prophecy that we have in Daniel 9. So Malachi a little bit before that time, somewhere around about 486 to 464 BC. And then a little while after that, we have the book of Nehemiah uh, being written. So although we have it last in our English Bible, it wasn't chronologically the last one written, but it's a very fitting book to close out the Old Testament for us. It's not the last book in the uh, the Hebrew Bible. Um, the Jews, their, book, their Hebrew Bible closes with Chronicles. Uh, they have a different order to these books. But for us, uh, the last book of the Old Testament as we know it. Uh, again, just to remind you, we have these three books of history that occur after the return from Babylon. We have Ezra, Nehemiah, and the book of Esther. 
Of course, Esther comes a little bit later as well. Um, and those are all just, just historical. There are prophetic elements in there, of course. But just dealing with the history of the times. And then these three prophetic books, Haggai, Zechariah, both around about the same time. In fact, as we said, Haggai uh, begins his ministry 518 BC. It's two months after Haggai starts that Zechariah comes onto the scene with his um, first uh, utterances, these visions he has that we've been looking at recently. Uh, and then, of course, we have Malachi. And they all fit into that period again after the Babylonian kingdom has fallen, the Medo-Persian empire is now the dominant empire. That's going to start to wane and it's going to make way for the empire of Alexander the Great, the Greek empire, which in itself leads on then to uh, towards the time of Jesus as the Romans then take over from that point historically. So a little bit of history for you, just to kind of give us some context of where we are. Now, the book of Malachi, uh, as I said, um, last of the post-exile prophets that we have in our English Bibles, the way it's given to us, his name means my messenger. Now, most commentators are quite happy to take that as his name, that his name is Malachi. Uh, interestingly enough, in the Targum of Jonathan, which is a kind of a commentary in the Old Testament, um, he actually, in his title, he has uh, the book of Malachi, also known as Ezra the scribe. So interestingly, I just throw it out there because it's interesting, um, there is, and there is, that's not the only reference, there are those that think that this book is actually the book, another book written by Ezra. Um, certainly he was alive and around at this time in history, so it could well be the case. And therefore, if that's the case, then he adopts this title, this name, because he's coming onto the scene saying, God is giving you a message, I am his messenger. Um, so it's just interesting. I don't need to make doctrine of it. I just think it's fascinating. I share it with you for what it's worth. The Jewish tradition states that Malachi uh, was a member of the great synagogue that had been formed uh, and a Levite uh, as well from Sufa in Zebulun. Um, that, that may seem strange. The, the Levites, of course, were separated around the tribes in Israel. So it shouldn't be a, a problem to, if, if that is the case. Uh, but it's through Malachi that God speaks one more time to the nation before the big day. The day that they've all been speaking about, all these minor prophets have been speaking about, the day of the Lord. And God is going to speak to them again. And you know, in a way, it's nice that we have this chronologically, or, or the way it's laid out in the English Bible, because it really does set the scene for all that is to come with the New Testament, and particularly into books like Revelation. Because Israel had become apathetic. You know, it's so easy when we get used to something, we get comfortable with something. They started entering into mixed marriages. That's marriages with those who were not Jews. Those who had other values, other gods, other standards of morality. And initially, there would no doubt have been raised eyebrows. There would have been people that would have been concerned, that would have said things. And then gradually it becomes the norm and everyone starts to accept it. Kind of a little bit like the world today, isn't it? But the problem also was in doing that, in in embracing the world's ways, they then start to withhold the things that should have been given to the Lord. And that's one of the challenges Malachi is going to bring against them. Kay Arthur, in her uh, study notes on Malachi, says this, Over and over, the children of Israel saw that God stood by his word. Just as Solomon wrote in Proverbs, the hearts of kings were in God's hands. And he could turn them wherever he wanted. 
Why then did the remnant of Israel think that they could live and worship any way they wanted once they returned from their 70 years of exile and settled again in Israel? And that is the question. And it's a question that we can ask of ourselves. You know, as I said already, this book really does speak to us today. You know, God has delivered us from captivity, just as the Jews have been delivered from Babylon. You know, do we think we can now just live and worship in the way we please? There is, sadly, in the church today, a kind of a blasé attitude towards how we approach God. And just as it was in Israel, and Malachi is going to speak to them on this issue, we should be asking ourselves the same question. You know, have we become apathetic? Have we got so used to doing church? You know, we're going through, about to enter into a season over the next couple of months that will be a little bit different for us. And you know what? It's probably a good thing for all of us. We all need to take stock and to think and ask, why do we do the things we do? One of the things that I've always been uh, keen on is never to promote something that is not of the Lord. God doesn't need my help or your help in sustaining something. If it's of the Lord, the Lord will bless it. I have a, a, a basic rule in terms of ministries that I would look to support in any particular way. You know, you, you know what it's like. You get letters through your door, I'm sure, for some of you, um, from various Christian ministries asking for donations. Please help us. Please, you know, send money back to us. And I always think to myself, you know what, if the Lord really has called you into being, then you don't need to ask for money because the Lord will provide. And I know ministries that will not ask for anything because their view, and I think this is the right way, you may have a different opinion, fine, but um, if, if the Lord has called something into being, the Lord will sustain it. CSM, Creation Science Movement, they've never asked for money. They've never sent out begging letters. They've never sent out, please help us. The Lord has always provided exceedingly abundantly everything they've ever asked or thought. I know that Chuck Misler's ministry, Coyote House, they've never sent out letters saying, please help us, please fund us. You know, I do think it's, it's worth thinking through at least before you choose to give resource or time or support in any way to any ministry, just consider whether the Lord is really supporting that ministry. Because if the Lord wanted to continue, it will continue. And it's the same with this fellowship. I didn't make this fellowship begin. I never, uh, I wasn't there at the start as, as Ron was called to the Lord to, to call this fellowship into being. The Lord has sustained it through the years. And if the Lord wanted to continue, it will continue, regardless of me, regardless of you. This is God's work. It's not my work. It's not your work. We should take comfort in that as well. But then the question, of course, just as we see with Malachi speaking to the children of Israel, They'd entered into mixed marriages. They'd embraced the things of the world and got comfortable with it. Well, the challenge for us is, have we done that? Have we entered into mixed marriages with the things of this world? The things that we've embraced and held dear? You know, and as a result, have we withheld from God that which we should have given him? You know, we could spend all morning on this theme alone. God... This is is the scenario. A Christian is in some sort of poverty, not necessarily financial, but whatever way in their life there's something that's lacking. And they seek God, they cry out to God, they ask God to provide, and God gives them that which they were wanting. 
And then suddenly that which he's given them, the blessing, becomes something that then becomes a barrier, a wedge between them and God. I've seen it so many times in ministry over the years. I've seen couples pray for children and then have children and thank God for those children and then stop coming to church because we want to spend time with the family. We need to be very careful with the blessings that God gives us. Think of David when these men went and took that water from the well in Bethlehem. What did David do? He brought it out to the Lord. Whatever God gives you, give it back to him. Because then God will give you more. But if you take and you keep for yourself, it will turn to rottenness, to bitterness. That great example of the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee has the water of the the River Jordan flowing into it continually. And it is teeming with life. Some of you have been there. You've seen it. I remember 2007 I was there, standing on the shore of Galilee and just seeing fish everywhere. And surrounding it is just so much growth and life and it's beautiful. And then we went down to the Dead Sea. You see, the, the, the Sea of Galilee takes the water in, but then it flows out the other end. The Jordan flows out. It takes in and it flows out. The Dead Sea takes the water in, but it doesn't go anywhere. It's dead. There's no life there whatsoever. It's a little bit like us. If we take God's blessings and we just keep it for ourselves, that's the way it will be. It will just turn to, to rottenness, to bitterness, to emptiness. But if God gives us and then we give out, well, there's great blessing in that. Maybe God is speaking to us one last time before our big day. You know, Israel's big day was coming. That was the day of the Lord. It was a day when it was going to be calamitous for them, as has been prophesied, but it's also going to be a day where their hearts will be turned to him. Our big day is a little bit different. Our big day is a day where we should be getting ready, cleansing ourselves, making ourselves look as good as we can being purified through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, through his word. Because we're going to be wearing a wonderful garment as we go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not as a guest, but as the bride. And that's what we should be doing. We should be getting ready for that. You know, I was listening to a commentary during the week, and he was speaking about somebody who knew, who said that, you know, so often Christians focus a lot on the tribulation and what's going to happen. And I understand the fascination with those things. He's, uh, this person was saying, you know, why do we do that? We shouldn't be focused on the tribulation. We're not going to be here for it. We should be focused on what's going to happen in heaven. What is the marriage of the Lamb going to be like? What are we going to be wearing? How, how incredible is it going to be? There's some wisdom in that. The key phrase in this book is the Lord of hosts. It's a recurring theme through the Old Testament, 24 times, uh, no surprise there, everything numerically in the Bible is there by design. 24 times this phrase, the Lord of hosts, occurs in this book. Another phrase that occurs repeatedly 12 times is, you say. And we're going to get a number of these in chapter 1, verse 2. is you say, how have you loved us? This is, this is their retort to God. They're going to ask God, how have you loved us? An incredible statement after all that God has done for them. You see, Israel saw how God had dealt with Edom, Israel's neighbors, family, relatives, and they questioned God's goodness. God had allowed Edom to be destroyed, and so they questioned God's goodness. Forgetting, of course, that God had allowed Edom to be destroyed because of their attitude toward Israel. And then they say, how have we despised your name? 
you know, they've not shown due respect to his name. And the challenge for each of us in every one of these is how does this apply to us? Do we really respect the name of God? How often do we hear people blaspheme that name and we just, we've got used to it. We've got apathetic toward it. How often do we pick people up when they use God's name in vain? Do you know, if you were in a, as I often have, in a working situation with non-Christians, if somebody were to disrespectfully use the name of Muhammad or Allah, could you imagine the reaction? I have Muslims who I work with. Nobody in the office would dare to, to use Allah or Muhammad's name in a disrespectful way. And if they did, they'd be called in before HR immediately and there'd be questions asked and disciplinary actions and so on. People can use the name of Jesus all day long and nobody worries. Well, I don't, I'm not happy with that. If any, if I hear people blaspheming in the workplace, I will immediately call them out on that. It's not acceptable. Jesus is the name above every name. Jesus is the name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not a name to be used as part of a casual expletive. Have we defiled you? Is a question that Israel will ask of God and God will give them the answer. You see, they'd offered despised offerings, things that didn't cost them. Now this is a challenge to us. We're all very happy to serve God if it doesn't cost us. But do you remember what David said when he's getting ready to build the temple? And the, the threshing floor of Orn, and after this plague has come upon the land, and David wants to purchase this piece of ground to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, an Ornan or Aruna, same individual. Says, well, David, you can have it for nothing. You're the king, I'm glad to give it to you. David says, no, 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 I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. To give away something that doesn't cost you anything, it doesn't it means nothing. Does our worship cost us something? And by the way, when I talk of worship, I'm not talking about singing songs. We do make that mistake so often that we think of worship And we're all guilty of doing this because we have a worship time and that's the time we sing songs. So I understand why we do it. But worship is our lives. It's what we do all day long. Do we offer to God things that cost us? It might cost us time to sit with his word. It might mean you need to get up a little bit earlier. That costs you something. But what are you giving to God? Are you just giving to God that which doesn't cost you anything? And they'll ask, how is giving the best to God a good thing? And this comes about because they saw others offering false offerings, as it were, to God. And so they kind of came to this conclusion, well, what's the point of doing it anyway? Because nobody takes it seriously. So we look at someone else and then we use that standard to make our own judgments? No, that's not how it should work. Again, they'll say in chapter 1, verse 13, how tiresome and there's no gain in it. What's the point? Do you know it's easy to get to that kind of place? You see, they were rejecting holiness because some had profaned it. Do we see holiness as something to mock out or something to give all we have for? We live in a world that doesn't understand holiness. 
They don't understand the, the reverence that we want to show to God. But at the same time, do we get to the point of thinking, well, nobody's bothered? What respect do we truly show to our great God? And then they ask the question, why don't we experience his blessing? Uh, well, <laughs> because of all the above, really. You know, they were living casual lives. And then they wept and groaned because the blessings didn't come. Well, that may be true in our own lives too. There is definitely a correlation between walking in the way and receiving his blessing. Psalm 119 starts with two statements of blessing, a double blessing, if you will, for walking in the way, in the law of the Lord, for keeping his testimonies. It's a blessing that's promised. In fact, if you read in Psalms, there's a number of times you'll find, blessed is the man that, and you can read man, woman, just human, Blessed is the person that, and it will give you an instruction as to what to do. If you want to receive blessing of the Lord, there's some simple things that God has said. If you live your life in this way, there will be blessing for you. Then they're going to ask, and this is a line of the song we sang earlier, have we wearied God? Could you weary God? We see the profession at the altar had been forgotten before they'd gotten to the door. It's a great song by Casting Crown, some of you are familiar with already. The altar and the door. It's a great song. Um, worth looking at the lyrics of that. But you know, so often we're here on a Sunday and we make these professions. But when we get to the door, when we get to Monday morning, there's a, a song by Hillsong some years ago. And the line, the lyric of the song was, you say on Sunday, you want revival, but on Monday you can't even find your Bible. And then they'd kind of turned the whole thing upside down and they started to think that what was evil was good and good was evil. They'd become like the world, it'd become like Isaiah speaks of. And it'd become so much part of their lives, they got used to it. Just like we have got so conditioned by the world in which we live in. So this book is a real challenge to us to consider how we are living in these days as we are getting ready for our big day. The structure of the book, obviously, we have an introduction in the first verse, and then we see God's unchanging love for his own, the total failure of the priest, we'll talk about that briefly, uh, and the failure to value the covenants that God had established with them. And then, of course, the Messiah's coming in judgment. See, the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come, but they thought he was going to come to set up his kingdom and, and deal with all their enemies to be told, no, the Messiah is going to come, but he's going to come in judgment, and that judgment will be upon you also. And then Israel's sin and yet future restoration in chapter 3, which we'll get to next week, and then the coming mission of Elijah. We'll look at that to conclude. Jack Mizzler just says this. He says, the temple was rebuilt. Priestly worship carried on. People had fallen into spiritual decline and their attitudes developed later into the sects of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he says that they become insensible to the love of God displayed toward them, unaware of the enormity of their departure from the will and the way of the Lord, and they lacked reverence for him. That's the scene. That's what we're going into. So let's jump into Chapter 1, and we read, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Again, by my messenger. 
Again, maybe that's not his name, maybe this is Ezra, but you get the idea that the statement here is that God's messenger has arrived on the scene and this is the burden that God has. And look at the burden. I have loved you, says the Lord. You know, the love that God has for his own is so heavy as to be a burden. You know, and you all know, I'm sure you can remember, that intensity of a romance I remember many years ago, before my sister married her husband, they were going out with each other or dating, or as my grandparents used to say, going steady. And we went on holiday, and Katie was so miserable for two weeks solid because she couldn't be with Graham. Now this, by the way, now young people, you'll find this hard to understand. This was in the days before mobile phones. So she couldn't, like, text or chat with him. and For two weeks, she couldn't talk to him. Oh, and didn't we know it? For two weeks, we had to endure this melancholy because she couldn't be with the one she loved. But you can probably all relate to that. That love you have for someone when you can't be with them. Maybe there's been a time where your spouse has gone away, traveled on a work trip or whatever situations occurred. And you're just looking, longing for that time to be together again. Maybe it's that your loved one has gone home to be with the Lord already. And you're looking forward to that time when you'll be together again. And there is nothing that can ease that burden in your heart. That's the love that God has for each one of us. You know, we use those kind of expressions, but God loves us so much it hurts. God says to Israel, I've loved you, says the Lord. That's the burden that Malachi, this messenger, starts off. And then he goes on and says, yet you say, Israel, but for us as well, wherein has thou loved us? Yeah, it's just questioning the love of God. That's got a herd on its own. And he says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. This is God's reply. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. You see, Israel's question back to God is, show us how you love us. You know, in a sense, all this calamity, the Babylonian captivity and everything else, it's all befallen us. Where was your love then? And God says, but don't you remember that I chose Jacob. I mean, there's something beautiful in that. We'll come to the, the statement about I hated Esau in a second. But look at the, the statement first that God is saying, I chose you. I mean, that's one of the most remarkable things about being married, that you know that your spouse chose you. You chose them, but they chose you as well. It's an incredible, incredible thing. That out of all the people on the earth, your spouse says, I want you. You see, that's God's response. And going on to this issue then of Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated, Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 9, verse 13. It's quoted, obviously, from this verse in Malachi, but alluding to the situation back in Genesis 25 with Jacob and Esau. We haven't got time to go through all the, the details of that. You know the history, I'm sure. You know, but Esau disparaged his birthright as a spiritual father of a subsequent progeny. You know, he didn't care about 
what God effectively was offering him. He didn't care about being chosen by God. And one commentator put it this way, the mystery is not why God hated Esau. That's actually easy to understand. The mystery is why did God choose Jacob in the first place? There's an interesting answer to this question that becomes clear. and We see a number of these examples through scripture. You see, it wasn't Cain, but Abel, of course, and then later Seth. God didn't choose except Cain and Cain's offering, but Abel. Not Japheth, but Shem, the sons of Noah. It wasn't Ishmael, but Isaac. You see, every one of these occasions, in a sense, the second is preferred or chosen over the first. Ishmael was there first as the son of Abraham. But Isaac, the the second son of Abraham, is the one who's chosen. And effectively, God refers to him as Abraham's only son. As we've just mentioned, not Esau, but Jacob. It wasn't Manasseh, but Ephraim. You remember, Jacob switches his hands and puts them on Joseph's son's heads. The other way around to what Joseph wanted or expected. It wasn't Aaron, who was the older brother, but Moses. Not Eliab, but David, who was chosen. It's not the old covenant, but the new. Not the first Adam, it's the last Adam. Of course, Esau and Jacob is the one that's in question here. I don't know whether you see a parallel with all of these examples, but it's quite simply this. You take to the sons of the Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Esau's case in point. They portray this constantly through Scripture. Typologically, the tension and the conflict between faith and works, grace and the law. You see, God doesn't take the best we have. God wants us to come to him on the basis of faith. Take the situation with Cain and Abel. Cain wanted to bring the best produce, his hard work, his labor. He was very proud of what he'd done. I wanted to give to God and say, look what I've done. God says, no. Abel comes with the shed blood of an innocent lamb. Nothing he'd done. This too, fatherhood's mentioned as well. Of course, God is our father, or Satan, effectively, John 1, 11, 13, versus John 8, 36 to 44, gives us that kind of parallel. But it's interesting, you know, this, don't look at it that God hated Esau and that God's unjust. Not at all, but God is not going to give his glory to another. We read verse 4, Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, saith the Lord of hosts. They shall be built, but I will throw down. It's another way of saying, you know, Edom can go and do whatever it wants to try and rebuild, but God's saying it, won't come, it will not come to anything. I will destroy it. They shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. You see, again, this whole idea of God honoring that which is of him, that he establishes. Let me just read from 1 Corinthians. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things, the second over the first, if you like to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised. God has chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's the whole point of this. 
But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. This is why God chose Israel. And this is why God rejected Esau and Edom. Verse 6 goes on. A son honored his father and a servant his master. Statements of fact, this is the way it should be. And God then says, if then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you? And then notice the, the real damning statement, O priests. Not just to the people, but to the leaders, the ones who should have been instructing them in righteousness, that despise my name. What a terrible thing for the leaders of the nation. What a terrible thing in our country that the leaders of the church, by and large, despise God's name. They care nothing for God's word, God's standard, God's decrees. And you say, wherein have we despised thy name? That's the the question they ask, and God's answer is this. Well, you offer polluted bread upon mine altar. That's how I know you despise my name, because you don't truly worship me. And you say, wherein have we polluted thee? How how are you saying we haven't worshipped you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. In other words, they treated it as something that was common and not something that was holy. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto the governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. Most of us can relate to a typical work environment where you have a boss and you have to work to whatever requests are placed upon you by your boss. And you do it, most of you, I'd imagine, in a way to please your boss. If your boss says that you need to be at work by a certain time, you do it. If you need to dress in a certain way, you'll do that. The work that you're given, you try and do that to the highest standard. And this is the argument that's being put forward here. You do that for the world, but it's not good enough to do it for God. First Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 and 22 through 25. I was going to read it, but for time I'll just let you go home and read that. And chapter 3 as well. It speaks of the sons of Eli. And they were not very good people. They were priests, they were of the tribe of Levi, but people were coming to offer their offerings and they were saying, well, you know, we we like that, but we'll, we'll keep that for ourselves. And they were taking more than they should have done from the people, just totally devaluing these offerings that have been given to the Lord. If you remember the whole situation when Eli has gone to sleep and Samuel as a young boy is there in bed and Samuel hears, Samuel, Samuel. So he gets up, he goes running to Eli, you know, the account three times, and eventually Eli says, oh, okay, I know what's going on here. Say, yes, Lord, your servant hears. Eventually Samuel says, yes, Lord, and the Lord speaks to him, and he tells him what's going to happen to Eli and his sons on account of their wickedness, and just as had been prophesied, God does exactly that. Eli's sons both end up dying on the occasion that the ark is captured by the Philistines. God is not mocked. And what was happening back there, as we read about in the book of Judges going into the book of Samuel, 
The same thing was happening in Israel in Malachi's time. The same thing is kind of happening now. People are quite happy to offer God that which doesn't cost them anything. But really in the light of eternity, what is going to matter most? That we have served our earthly masters well or that we served the Lord well. And now I pray you beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This has been by your means. Will he regard your persons, says the Lord of hosts. The messenger, Malachi now, begging them, seek God. Pray that God will be gracious on account of the way you have been living. Notice the Trinity shining through here. Uh, just that verse again. I pray now, beseech God that will be gracious unto us. And he goes on and says, saith the Lord of hosts. So we've got God and the Lord of hosts, the God of heaven's armies, the second person of the Trinity, you and I refer to as Jesus Christ. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. Now, I don't normally go to the NIV, but I do quite like the way it translates this. It says, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. So that's kind of the real import. Let me try and bring that up to date for us. Okay, so let's say next Sunday we just shut the doors and stop doing church. That's the kind of suggestion that's being put forward because the argument that's being presented is because I want you to really ask yourself, is what you are doing for the Lord? The idea is to shut the temple doors. Let's stop offering all offerings. Unless it is in spirit and in truth, unless it is for the Lord and for his glory. We were talking earlier about the jobs that need to be done within the fellowship, the things, the practical things. But you know, that's an opportunity to serve God. I would encourage you to consider the situation with Gideon. Gideon starts off with this 30,000 plus army. He ends up with 300 men. Who gets the victory? Everyone. God grants the victory to the whole nation. Those that went and fought, so the 300 that fought, and those that stayed behind in the camp, those that were fearful and afraid, those that weren't prepared, everybody got the victory. But who had the honor for eternity? Who will have the honor for eternity of knowing that they were used of God to bring about that victory? Just a handful of faithful people. The point is, God will raise up people that will serve him. Do you want to be one of them? If you do, the opportunity is there. Not just here, this fellowship, this is part of it, but in your lives. If, on the other hand, you prefer to spend your time doing whatever else you want to do with your time, that's okay, you're saved. You'll still benefit in the victory, but you won't have that joy of saying, the Lord used me, that privilege. It's the Isaiah thing, Lord, here I am, send me. This is the question that's being presented to the people here. You know, should we just shut the doors? If your worship, if your offering isn't really from your hearts, 
and just stop it. Verse 11 goes on, for from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In the midst of this lesson to Israel, the statement that God is going to be magnified, and in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name. Not something that's false, not something that's just out of repetition, it's not just going to church. This is something that is pure. It says, a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, says the Lord of hosts. See what God is saying, what I just said a moment ago? God is saying to Israel, you have the opportunity to step up and worship me in spirit and in truth. If you're not going to do it, shut the doors. I will bring in the Gentiles to do it. Do you know what you all probably have? Friends, neighbors. You could say to them, I'm not sure what you're doing next Sunday, but we could just do with a hand just to come and set some gear up. You don't have to stay for the service. Just come and help us set some stuff up just for half an hour. How many of your friends or your neighbors or your family members would would say, yeah, I'll come give you a hand. And guess what? They get to, to meet us and to talk to us. And how many of them then might say, well, you know what, I might even stay. Just saying. The Lord is going to bring in here, he's saying, I'm going to bring in the Gentiles to worship me because you're not doing it. John 4, 23 to 24 says, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But you, going back to Malachi chapter 1 verse 12, But you have profaned it in that you say the table of the Lord is polluted and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. In other words, Other people weren't doing it, so why should we? You said also, behold, what a weariness is it. And ye have snuffed it, saith the Lord of hosts, and ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus you brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. In other words, because it be somebody who has the ability to do something, who has in his flock a male. The idea is a male without blemish, like there is in, in the, the Passover uh, offering, um, Exodus 12. That which was to be offered had to be a male of the first year, without spot, without blemish. That was to be offered. It's saying, curse it be the person that has that, has the ability to do something, but then offers the Lord a corrupt thing. It doesn't do it. God's going to get the glory. God's going to do what he wants to do, however he wants to do, in whichever way he does it. We can either choose to be part of that, or you know what, he's going to bring in other people to do it. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. There are people in this world that actually honor and respect God more than Christians do. They fear God. Have we got to the place where we've stopped fearing God? Right, in six minutes I'm going to run through chapter two. It's not it's a longer chapter, but there's not so many comments. Verse one. And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it 
to harm. That says everything. Verse 3, behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces. The idea, often we think of seed as in offspring, but the commentators and commentaries seem to suggest this is talking about agriculturally. I will corrupt your seed. The things that you're planting won't grow. In other words, our modern way of thinking, our efforts won't prosper. And spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feast, and one shall take you away with it. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. To understand the context of this, you need to reread Exodus 32, where Moses comes down the mountain and the golden calf has been built. Moses asked the question, who is on the Lord's side? And the tribe of Levi all rallied together and they then up fighting against their brethren. All those that were getting into this immorality and adultery and worshipping this calf, Levites put them to death. They were zealous for God. And so God says, I'm going to choose you because you've shown this zeal toward me. I'm going to choose you to be a priestly tribe. Rather than the whole nation being a tribe of priests or a nation of priests, I'm going to have you as my special called out ones to serve me. The church, of course, is also the called out ones. The ecclesia, the church, means to be called out. But God said to Levi, I'm going to call you out. You're going to be special, separated. That's what the context of this covenant was. Wherewith you feared me and was afraid before my name. Levites, the Levites had respect to God back then. And this is the challenge now because he goes on. The law of truth was in his mouth and iniquity was found in his lip. Uh, and iniquity was found in his lips and he walked with me in peace. Sorry, let me read that again. I misread that. Verse 6. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found. That's the key word there. Not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn many away from iniquity. This is the priests of Israel. This is what they should have done, the Levites. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law in his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Malachi putting his own name in here. So this is, again, an allusion to the fact that he was a priest. Verse 8, but you are departed out of the way. That's how it was. You served me, you had this real zeal for God, but you've now become apathetic. You departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. It's the reverse of how it should have been. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. What covenant? It's that covenant that God established with them, that they would be those that would minister on behalf of the nation and lead people closer to God. Instead, they've gone the other way. The church, as I said, is a royal priesthood. These things can apply equally to us. Therefore, verse 9, have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people according as you have not kept my ways but have been partial in the law? Have we not all for one, uh, sorry, have we not all one Father? Have not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? See, incredibly, Oh, sorry, this incredible prophecy regarding the way the nations would see the Jews. This is exactly what's happened. Again, therefore also have I made you contemptible and base before all the people. Okay, this is around the world, the way that people look upon Israel, and largely it's on account of the spiritual leadership of the nation. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination. 
is committed in Israel and Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. See, Malachi now paints a picture of love and commitment. And such as should have been between Israel and God. And the analogy that he's going to give us is that of marriage. It says, and you, and this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping. Again, we were singing this in that song this morning and crying out insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Yet you say, wherefore? Because the Lord has been witnessed between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet she, yet, yet is she thy companion, the wife of thy covenant. So the challenge now is, They've gone after, they've, they've left their first wives and they've married pagan wives. They've embraced the things of this world. And God is challenging them in regard to this. He's speaking of the intimacy of the covenant, the relationship that should have been there. And he uses this example of marriage as possibly the greatest expression of love and covenant and commitment that we have. Verse 15 goes on, And did not he make one yet? He had the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? So this is God has made of one flesh, that which is joined together. That he might seek a godly seed. A great statement. This is what God desires from marriage. A godly seed. Those that would then carry on to serve the Lord. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. This speaks again the importance of the sanctity of marriage, of this agreement, of this covenant. But the context is that God is saying that Israel has forgotten the love that they should have had with God. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, or God hates divorce. He hates it when this relationship that was intended, that, that two should come together in one. He hates when that's broken apart. For one covereth violence with his garments, saith the Lord of hosts. An allusion there to the whole idea of marriage being covered in this garment. You know the account with Ruth Ruth on the threshing floor. As she takes the cover that Boaz is sleeping and she puts it over herself. There's a number of expressions like that in scripture. It's coming under the authority of. But here it's saying, for the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, for one covereth violence with his garment. You're not coming under the authority of God, you're coming under the authority of the things of the world. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that you deal not treacherously. Oh, and then it goes on, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? And the response is, when you say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? That was the challenge. That was the question they were kind of asking. More or less, we can get away with whatever we want. God, God's not bringing judgment upon us. We're okay as we are. Well, the God of judgment is on his way. And as we pick it up next week, we'll see the statements that God is coming. God will bring judgment. But God does not tolerate and will not condone 
this breaking of this covenant that we should have with him. The book of Revelation has seven letters to seven churches. The first of those letters is a letter to the church of Ephesus. They started well, they had great doctrine, but the challenge to them is you've forgotten your first love. And in a sense, that's exactly what God is saying here. You know, he uses the real practical situation where they had put away their first wives, they divorced their wives, they'd gone after and taken foreign wives. But ultimately he's saying, the bigger problem is you've forgotten me. I'm no longer the first, the most important. I'm no longer your all in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things this morning and we pray, oh Lord, we pray that you would be our all in all. That we would love you and desire you and want you more than anything in this world. Lord, as we stop and think about all the things that we sow to, that we put our time and efforts and energies into. Oh Lord, where do you rate on that scale? How much of our life is given over to you? How much of our time is given over to walking with you, seeking you, spending time with you, serving you, ministering to each other because of you? Oh Father, we pray that you would give us hearts of true worship. Lord, if we have been neglecting to bring the offerings before you that we should have done, then Lord, forgive us. Bless this fellowship, Lord. We pray you would raise up within us, Lord, those that are able to minister and serve. And yet, Lord, we also know that you can use the Gentiles. You can bring others in. But Lord, whatever way I pray, we just pray your house will be filled. It will be for your glory. Lord, may we love you more and more each day. We ask this in this morning, in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen.